Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this event, Syria Beyond the Endgame. It's organized by the Middle East Center here at uh, LSE. Um, I'm Ian Black. I'm a visiting senior fellow at the Middle East Center. Uh, it's my pleasure to be introducing Martin Chulov, who is, of course, still at The Guardian, and I was there also for a very, very long time. So this has a nostalgic element for me, too. What we're going to do is this. Um, Martin will speak for 20 or so minutes. Um, I'll probably have a couple of really irritating questions to ask him, and then we will open up to uh, questions from you, the audience. So I've been told I need to ask you to put your phones on silent. The talk is going to be recorded. Um, Martin has been reporting for The Guardian from the Middle East since 2005. Eight, okay. He won the Orwell Prize for Journalism in 2015 for his coverage. Uh, he's also the author of two books, Libya, Murder in Benghazi, and the Fall of Gaddafi, um, and Australian Jihad, The Battle of Terrorism from Within and Without. Uh, he's based in Beirut, and we're very lucky to have him here with us today on a short visit to London. So, Martin, over to you. 15, 20 minutes. Tell us what's happening in Syria. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the assignment. Um, thank you, Ian. And uh, as Ian said, we, we spent many years working alongside each other at The Guardian. Um, and, you know, some very important years, too, uh, in particular, uh, the Arab Spring uh, from 2011 and, and uh, the latest incarnation of it now. Um, I'd like to thank up front uh, the Middle East Centre at LSE for, for having me here tonight. And as Ian said, I'd, um, I, I aim to speak briefly before opening up for discussion, first with my esteemed colleague and, and secondly, uh, you good people here. I always find that uh, the interactive aspect of a discussion, of a, of a discussion is, is much more important than me giving a sermon from the mountaintop. We all have our views. We're all here because we're interested. And um, so I'll, I'll just start with a few observations. Um, and before we get to where we are now, I, I just want to recap on how we got to where we are. Um, by any measure, the numbers are stark in Syria. Uh, half the country has fled their homes. Uh, the UN stopped counting the death count, death tally in 2016 at roughly 600,000. Uh, refugee flows are across into Turkey, into Lebanon, into Jordan, and, and far beyond, are upwards of 8 million people. A country is largely in ruins, and international order has been strained. Global bodies have been rendered impotent. There's been repeated use of banned weapons with impunity. And Syria has become a place where hope was lost and where diplomacy has failed, and where aid has been weaponized as it's been used as a, a political tool. It wasn't, it wasn't this way at the beginning. It was also very different. And uh, I mentioned that Ian, I, Ian and I covered the Arab awakenings. And I, I do recall very early on um, when it was the Tunisian vendor who had uh, set himself alight as a, as a sign of protest. I, it was Ian who saw that right there as a, as a seminal moment, something that was going to force this uh, uh, shocking sort of uh, change in the region. But neither of us knew just how far that was going to rumble uh, before 
Before we knew it, I was on the road. I was in, uh, first of all, Egypt, then Bahrain, uh, then Cairo, as, uh, as regimes were, were, were starting to wobble everywhere. These impregnable uh, state systems, which were being sorely and easily tested, much, much more easily than we, we ever thought they were. The power of the street was exposing the fragility of authority. And this was exciting, this, dr this was dramatic, and it was genuinely revolutionary. And through all that period, we used to look across, I was in Beirut, still am, but Syria, it was, a, it was this, almost a fortress. Not quite a hermit state, but it was a very tightly managed state and uh, we didn't think that the sort of revolt we were seeing reverberate across the region was going to really take hold there. Um, and it did. Now for the first six months of 2011 from March onwards, uh, about February onwards actually, there was a series of weekly revolts. It was, a, it was a, a, a protest movement that became a class struggle, that became, a, that became an expression of, of a will for change. There were so many currents invested in these weekly protests with banners and flags. The old flag, not the new Syrian flag, the flag that predated the Assad regime. It was not quite back to the future, but it was we have now been empowered and, and we want to be masters of our destiny or at least have a stake. In, uh, in, in how our lives are lived. These were, these were dramatic times, they were, they were, they were extraordinary times. I, I got across the border into the town of Kusser in, uh, in early 2012. Um, Kusser later became a, a very strategic hub in the Syrian war because it was of its location primarily. It was right on the Lebanese border. It, was, it separated Homs and Zabadani and I should say, Medea and Zabadani and Homs there, and uh, it was uh, right on the edge of the Hezbollah heartland. So it became very important. But back in those days, there were people putting flags together, drawing their banners, talking about their hopes, and we would sit with them. We would sit with them. They, they were simple people. They were, they were rural folks. They were farmers. Um, they were mechanics. And they were energised by a sense of what could, what could become of their country and the role that they may play in shaping their destinies. Now, I'm, I didn't think then and I don't think now that all of these people looking for something new, something afresh, something away from the tight strictures of, of, a, of a police state, of an autocracy, I, I don't necessarily say that they were going to embrace Jeffersonian democracy there and then. But what they did want is, is a way to express themselves or a way to organise. And that was the enthusiasm that they felt, the energy of the Syrian revolt and it was something that Syrian leaders just simply could not let stand. And they were prepared to do anything to fill that vacuum. <coughs> and they did. Um, early on, by late 2011, early 2012, at that point Ian was getting to Damascus. I could never get visas. They would never give me one. But we, we, we got people in there. And it was very clear that there was a strategy to release prisoners uh, security prisoners from regime prisons and to, let, to set them free. And it was, it was demonstrable that what they were looking to do is to introduce a, a form of radicalism into these demonstrations and think that, they, that, that, the, that the revolution itself would become co-opted by people who had nothing to do with the ideals of change for change's sake, of civil society, political society. They wanted to assert their influence through extremist means. By mid-2012, at that point, I'd been travelling into Aleppo a lot, into the north of the country. At that, it was easy to cross the border from Turkey. Um, there were, a, a, 
Aleppo, the eastern Aleppo had fallen and it was, it was, we could get around the city, we could see the battles between the west, which was regime held, the east, which was this, again, a new focal point of opposition, of revolution, of insurgency as well. But I recall by, I think it was the 1st of August that year, we were on a front line and we saw a pickup truck arrive. Uh, there were 15 guys in the back and they jumped off into stashes. And uh, some of them had distinctive beards, no moustaches. Uh, they were not Syrians. And uh, they announced themselves as Mujahideen, those who had come to, to help out. They were foreigners. And we got, saw them get off the truck. They fired a few shots at helicopters and then they disappeared into the, into the ruins. And that was the last we saw of them. But that was the moment that the battle had been joined by uh, Islamic fighters who had come to defend uh, what they deemed to be a, uh, a holy war at that time. It was a point in the, in the, in the, in the uh, Syrian war that we thought was a seminal moment, but I did not think that it was going to totally change the course of the revolution. Um, and I think as we, as we continued to travel to Syria, every time I went back, there were, it was very clear, certainly from the north, that the original uh, ethos of the of the of the anti-Assad anti revolution remained. It was very much we want a chance to assert ourselves and to, to build our own community. But it was it was clear that there was a Trojan horse element that had been introduced to these foreigners who were who were being organised. Uh, we we saw the formation of Jabhat al-Nusra. Uh, they were very much a global jihadi group, although there were a constituency among them who who considered themselves nationalists as well. And then by Early 2013, at that point, Aleppo had become a very dis difficult place to visit. It was dangerous. There were checkpoints that uh, you, you, you couldn't necessarily guarantee getting past. The organization we know as the Islamic State uh, announced its arrival. In truth, it had been there. It had been organizing for at least six to nine months prior. But by that point, they felt strong enough to say, we are here and we are now, and we are taking over from Jabhat al-Nusra here. So again, we saw the, the war in the north change. We saw a, a fierce battle between secularists, between moderates, between Islamists, between jihadists. By now, there was little consistency, little coherence. The original Free Syria Army groups that had organized along nationalistic lines were splintering, some because of self-interest, others because they'd been co-opted by outside powers. Um, but the, the, the Syrian war at that point started to look to me and to, to my colleagues who were visiting as something which was getting to a point of being irredeemable. The regime continued to release um, security prisoners. Parts of the country became out of their control. Uh, they lost cities, including Raqqa, eastern Aleppo, um, Idlib as well. And it, it became a, a, a very difficult environment in which to work. And it started to look like a, a very difficult environment in which uh, in which the, uh, the printer didn't work. So I'm speaking of not working, I, the, my points didn't work, so I'm going to have to ad-lib completely now, forgive me. Um, but I want, to, I want to start with some, I want to continue with some important uh, moments along the way. Uh, 2012, um, late 2012, despite all the dysfunction within the uh, Syrian opposition, the rebel groups had penetrated the security zone inside of Damascus. They got there, they didn't know what to do, they left. 
Um, they went back because they simply were not prepared to, to, to occupy a security zone or to pose a threat that they needed to pose in order to, stop, to topple the regime. In February the following year, Hezbollah overtook the uh, town of Qusay, the one that I visited a year earlier, and they did that for, uh, for strategic reasons. They needed to control um, that particular town, which is on the edge of Lebanon, just across the border from Baalbek and Homel, which are their strongholds. That also changed the very nature of the war for the Alawite heartland and beyond. It, it, put, it, it put them at the epicenter of, of, the, uh, of a very important front for the war and uh, they were able to gradually manipulate the battle uh, in their interests and those of the Syrian military. Casting forward to 2013, uh, August 2013, we saw the very large scale chemical attack um, in Ghouta. In, uh, in the suburbs of Damascus, 1,350 people killed. Uh, we saw at that point the potency of the geostrategic implications in terms of the US considering a, a military response, a punitive response, uh, and Russia and the US coming to a, an arrangement whereby Syria's stockpiles of sarin were withdrawn in return for the Americans uh, agreeing not to attack. That was a seminal moment too. Um, as was casting forward another year or so. By this time, ISIS had truly taken hold in the north of the country. They really had subverted not just, uh, not just the, the, the secular, the more moderate opposition, but the Islamic forces themselves. They were splintering the Syrian war in, into many different ways. Cut, uh, the, the, the foreign policy dimension was very significant too. We had uh, Qatar became involved in arming groups that they deemed supported their worldview. They were mainly al allied to the Muslim Brotherhood, but they also supported uh, elements of Jabhat al-Nusra, who were al-Qaeda linked. Uh, after the, the chemical attack, the siren attack in Ghulta, the, Saudi, the Saudis became involved, both in the southern front in Jordan and both from the north in Turkey. They were arming groups that were opposed to the Muslim Brotherhood. So we had a really potent proxy war taking shape even then. Turkey had joined the fray. They were looking to shape the war in their own interests. The US were in there. By early 2015, the Americans, still not knowing, and th this is a very important point, they still did not know what they aimed to achieve out of their involvement in the Syrian war. And it, throughout the whole process of, of, of consultancy with senior advisors in Washington or beyond, it was never clear that Barack Obama had a strategic vision for the country. He did see, he did want to tie it into uh, his view that Iran were a more, a less malign uh, regional partner than Saudi Arabia were. So the pivot towards Iran did bring in Syria as a, as an element. Uh, but his calculation was that if he went easy on Iran, then Iran would go easy on Syria. They didn't. Uh, they were investing very heavily too, uh, to the defense of Bashar al-Assad. Um, and then by, Mid-2015, we had an, an extraordinary mess. Uh, I mean, it was so opaque and maddening. Nobody was winning. The country had been more or less destroyed by then, and the numbers that I cited at the start of this discussion uh, were just as, as, uh, as horrifying as they are now. Despite that, in, uh, in and around Tartus and Latakia, very important areas for the Syrian regime, um, Tal missiles that had been supplied by the Saudis but, but allowed into the country by the CIA were taking a very heavy toll on Bashar al-Assad's army. Uh, so much so that 
that part of the country looked at real risk of falling to opposition groups. And these were regular opposition groups. They were not jihadists. The jihadists were further north. At that point, ISIS was further to the east. But the Iranians worked out in September 2015 that, in, that uh, Assad was under serious risk of, of losing control of his heartland, which would have had clear implications for the capital, Damascus. And the Iranian uh, uh, general, Qasem Soleimani, a very important, very powerful figure in the Middle East, flew to Moscow, put maps on front of the table of Vladimir Putin and said, we need to partner up here because our interests, our mutual interests, are going to, going to be damaged if we don't. Within three weeks, the Russian Air Force was involved. The Iranian ground forces were taking control. There was a battle for Aleppo. Aleppo had fallen. And after that, it, it became very clear that what remained of the Syrian opposition could no longer regroup, um, could no longer assert itself, and the war was more or less lost. Now, I could, I could go through a potted detail of, of, of uh, the next year and a half. It, 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 it's just more, I guess, attritional misery. But we did get to a point by earlier this year whereby uh, it became obvious that the opposition had been defeated, and they have been. They cannot win this war. Where are we now? Jordan, despite being an enthusiastic partner for uh, the Americans and the Saudis, have, have given up, and they did so in February, uh, if not earlier. They, they no longer have any aspirations to topple the Syrian regime. The Turks, who had been probably more proactive than anyone else in, in terms of uh, their aims to to topple Bashar and to support the opposition, have also subverted that goal to their broader aims, which are using northern Syria as a vehicle for their own interests. That is, to, to keep the Kurds at bay, to change the colour of, uh, of the Turkish border, which used to be more or less dominated by Turks, and, and now they're going through an attritional shift in, uh, in replacing Kurds near the border with Arabs. They're backing proxy forces inside the country, but they no longer have any great interest in fighting Bashar. Iran, they believe that their strategic interest, which is ensuring that the regime will not fall, has been secured. Russia, likewise, um, they think that, that they are the ones, more so than Iran, that have secured Bashar. And there will be a, a very uh, clear and combustible political battle um, for many years to come now about who gets to define the national character. Who gets to shape what emerges from the ruins of the country? That is where we are now in the post-war Syria. Iran, want their goals are very different to, to Russia's goals. Turkey's are as well. Uh, for now, we have a, a more or less a, a, a cooperative alliance between the Turks, the Iranians, and the Russians, um, who, despite me saying at the outset of this discussion that diplomacy has failed in Syria, which remains largely true, the agreement to save Idlib from a, a military assault led by the Russians and the, and the Syrians is an important one. It has secured the northwest of the country where more than two and a half million people, many of whom have fled from elsewhere in Syria, remain vulnerable and very exposed with nowhere to run. So the fact that three major powers have been able to come up with an agreement to keep that part of the country stable for now is something which finally uh, uh, is, is a starting point for where Syria goes. We look at ISIS to the, to the east, um, militarily not defeated, but uh, certainly very significantly diminished. We look at the American involvement, in it, which is now confined to the northeast of, of the country, and that was 
primarily a counterterrorism role, like certainly since the, in the Trump administration. It's now become using the Kurdish forces that the Americans raised to fight um, ISIS to reposition and use as a buffer against Iran. So there's very, after so much blood, mayhem, destruction and misery, I would not say we're out the other end, but we have moved to a new, a far more strategic phase in the Syrian crisis where the country, where, where the regime has been saved, the opposition has been defeated, and now we have this potent geostrategic struggle to use the ruins of Syria uh, to shape the interests of, of, of many different players in this conflict. That's where we are now, um, and I, I, on, on that, Ian, I think I'd, I'll probably throw it back to you and... And uh, Marta, thank you very much. That was a fantastic tour d'horizon. A lot of detail, plus the big picture. Um, very illuminating. So I, I want to ask a couple of questions, but they're kind of big questions. Because I also was involved in coverage of the Syrian crisis from when? Say from 2011 for about five years. Till I stopped doing that on a regular basis. And I'm troubled by it, I have to say. I'm troubled by what's been a terrible story. We've, we've talked about the toll, the human cost of it, the uncertainty about the future. But I'm troubled by the question which goes something like this. I mean, people like us, you know, being a journalist is both a big responsibility and a privilege, right? I think we agree. Um, but did we get it wrong? I mean, were we wrong to believe that from March, April 2011, there was any hope that the, the, the winds of the Arab Spring could liberate the people of Syria. Were we naive? Did we underestimate the resilience, the cynicism of the Syrian state, Assad and cronies, in terms of protecting their own position? I mean, I, I have a really vivid memory. You mentioned, you made a reference to it. In January 2012, I visited Zabadani. Zabadani, just north of Damascus, quite close to the border with Lebanon. I was in Damascus on a Syrian government visa, but you could still, at that point, relatively early on, you could still move around. You could go to opposition-held areas. And it was an immensely moving experience. Zabadani, 20 miles maybe from Damascus, okay, you had to get around army roadblocks and stuff like that. But it was a moving experience. The people were really, they were out there calling for the overthrow of the regime. All those moving slogans of that time. At night, there were, people were nervous, but they were excited. And it was hard not to be affected by that. But a few months later, you talk about 2012, towards the end of the year, certainly by 2013, that hope seemed to have disappeared. Did we get it wrong? So the, the assessment that we made at the time was that those, not just in Syria, but right across the region, who were prepared to take to the streets and say that we want a stake in our destiny. We, we are no longer going to uh, stand for the, this totalitarian system which, in which we've, uh, we've grown up and we are now prepared to raise our voice. These people were worth backing, not just in Syria, but elsewhere. And let's not forget what, what we stand for as, a, as an organization, certainly as The Guardian, but beyond that, that for, from, for many decades, there has been a, 
a collective will to support people who are going to dare to defy. This is what they did in Tunisia, Egypt, Bahrain, and it's certainly what they did in Syria. And there isn't any doubt in my mind, uh, even with the benefit of many years of hindsight now, that the, that the, the revolt, the revolution, it was organic, it was genuine. These were people who finally saw their moment. It does not mean they were going to sign up to, uh, as I said earlier, any form of Jeffersonian democracy oh. straight away, but they are entitled as a basic human dignity to say, we are, we are going to raise our voices. Of course they are, but did they ever have any chance of achieving that? Well, Th that's the question that I'm troubled by. They not, not in what we did, we reported what we saw. People had views from the start, as you know, we have plenty of arguments. Again, you know, I'm not giving anyway any secrets, you know, within The Guardian, different people, columnists, people who were reporting on the ground. But did we get it wrong in terms of assessing the prospects for the, for the scenes that we saw, the aspirations that we heard so much about? I think, fundamentally, the decision to, to chronicle, to report, to document, uh, the, the organic uprising was the right one, absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Was our assessment that they were going to get to the point where they need to in, uh, in order to roll the regime or to, uh, to set up a new body politic, it was always going to be a long and tortured process. And let's not forget, despite you know, never, never really establishing any sort of a coherent, consistent uh, political movement, let alone a military organisation or, 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 or something that could gel the two, the Syrian opposition, in its many incarnations, got very close to toppling Bashar on, on several occasions. And Bashar was saved by Iran and by Russia, and uh, on, uh, at least twice, uh, for twice for sure. So were we supporting the opposition by reporting on them? I don't necessarily think so. I think what we were doing journalistically is, is documenting, chronicling uh, the uh, the, the revolution itself and telling the stories of those who were standing against him. We had people on the other side, yourself and others, who travelled to Damascus and, and covered the, the very legitimate uh, views of those who thought that change for change's sake was, was, was pointless and, and futile and that they, d despite the regime's shortcomings, they felt safer with it. Those views existed, those people existed. They were just as dignified as well. But what I always railed against was the narrative that was put together very early that there was never an authentic revolution in the first place, that it was co-opted from the early days by foreign powers, hidden hands, conspiratorial groups or whatever. That was fundamentally not true then. It did become a little bit true later on. I mean, there, there were, as I've said, there were many different complexities to, to, uh, to this conflict. But in the earliest of days, this was a raw, genuine, organic uh, movement that was well worthy of, uh, of, of, of being chronicled. When did the revolution come closest to achieving its goal? Certainly when uh, the opposition groups, and at that point they were, they were quite disciplined and they were coherent uh, in and around Damascus. There were parts of the country where they were stronger than elsewhere. But the Free Syria Army, as it was at that point, did get into the security zone of right near Bashar's p palace oh. in, uh, in late November, early December 2012. And the regime military, which had been bedeviled by defectors, deserters, incompetents, and uh, disloyalty was not able to mount a defence. But rather than hold their positions, they didn't know what to do. They simply retreated. Uh, if, you know, if they were more uh, disciplined or if they had more experience, they might have been able to establish uh, control within, within the most strategic area of the Syrian government. Uh, so 2012 was one. 
2015, September was second, and that was when the uh, <coughs> opposition groups, again, regular vetted opposition groups in and around Latakia Tartus, had been causing havoc with Saudi-supplied tower missiles. But do you think that, I mean, to me, I've got the date precisely wrong, but it's about the summer of 2012. That's when you get the succession of statements, first of all, from Barack Obama, obviously important, calling for Assad to go. That <coughs> echoed by government, including here in the UK, <coughs> across Europe. Was that the right thing to do at the time, or were they actually saying something that, as we subsequently saw, perhaps many people would argue, those countries which called for Assad to go never did enough to make that happen. And that the support for Assad from the Russians and the Iranians was always far stronger than anything given by the West or indeed by the Arab world. That's, in, that's indeed how history is judged, that, uh, that stands with the conflict, and I think it's judged it correctly. Uh, Bashar was, uh, I should say, Barack Obama was conflicted. Uh, he did, on one hand, want to feel a sense of obligation to tap into the m momentum that he was demonstrably seeing, not just in Syria but elsewhere, and that is to stand on the side of freedom, of the suffering, and there, uh, it, it was, he was looking for reasons to support them, um, but he was never enthusiastic about it. Um, and, and that statement, in which was perceived at the time as a, as a statement that he didn't intend on following through, was proven to be such uh, just over a year later um, when he negotiated the deal with the Russians to withdraw Syria's sarin stockpiles. He fundamentally did not want to get deeply involved in Syria, and he didn't want to for a couple of good reasons. He had campaigned on not getting America, or getting America out of what he called dumb wars. There was a, a raging well, there had been a raging sectarian war next door in Iraq that had been launched by his predecessor. He described that as a dumb war, and he, he, he was instrumental in withdrawing American forces from Iraq. To double down in Syria three or four years later was something he was deeply reluctant to do. He believed he would have ended up owning a crisis of the, of the scale that we see today. But it, it remains a fact that, uh, that Barack Obama did not see solving uh, American in, uh, involvement in Syria as being uh, something which was going to um, stabilize the region. He had his eyes on a bigger price. His view, his strategy was to pivot towards Iran and to use Syria as a subset of that. He thought if he, w if he uh, went easier on the Iranians that they may go easier in Syria. That was, a, that was a mistake, that was a miscalculation, and I think that went a long way to, to emboldening the Iranians and the Russians several years down the track. Of course, he also wanted the Iranians to agree to end their nuclear weapons program, or their nuclear program, which right. was part of his consideration. I remember we were in Cairo, you and I, together, in August 2013, mm -hmm. when we saw the horrendous results of the, uh, of the eastern uh, Ghouta attack. Um, I think we should hear from you lot. I have to say one thing that... <coughs> being terribly old-fashioned, but if you want to tweet about this event, it is hashtag LSE caps Syria, okay? But please uh, ask Martin whatever you like. There's a gentleman at the back here. And just, I think that, do we ask you to, do you want to just identify yourself briefly? Well, actually, I know who you are, but tell everybody else anyway. Uh, first of all, thank you for coming. I'm Jad, I'm a second year IR student here. Uh, so, as you said, the regime is regaining some of its control back, and it seems like they already have a plan or strategy to further that control in Syria by placing some laws. 
Now, I'm not sure how, how much you've been following those, those things specifically, but they have been placing laws that allow, uh, that displace refugees and make it difficult for them to, sorry, to come back to their houses. Do you think that the regime would be able to do that, or is there enough pressure from neighboring countries that don't want refugees to stay there to come back to Syria? So the, uh, as you say, the regime are doing all they can to, uh, they're in a, they're in a uh, vengeful mood. Uh, they've introduced laws, including in particular the Article 10 property law, which makes it uh, very difficult for um, families to come back to certain parts of the country, particularly opposition parts of the country, those who stood against him and reclaim their properties. Um, now, it, there is a, a significant risk for, for refugees who had either directly stood against Bashar or had come from such communities where their loyalty is going to be tested to head on back. Uh, and if they do, what's there for them if they can't move back into the houses in which they were? Uh, Article 10 is could potentially be used as a tool for um, uh, forcing or imposing a, a demographic shift around the country. It doesn't necessarily have to be demography, but it certainly, in their calculation, would be bringing loyal communities or communities that they deem to be loyal to them into areas that matter to them. Um, uh, it doesn't need to be necessarily a, a, a Shia, Alawite, Sunni thing, but there is an element of that to it. And the point you raise is an important one. There is... Uh, in Lebanon in particular, there's a lot of political pressure to pretend all is well in Syria and that refugees need to go back uh, because things are sorted. Um, this is a, uh, uh, some, something which is engaging uh, the UN, uh, the, engaging the Lebanese, um, and so far we haven't seen any, a lot of uh, large-scale pushing people across the border into harm's way, and that can't happen because Syria is not a, a stable place yet. It is not a place where people can uh, can can go back and, and reclaim what they what they ran from. Less pressure in Turkey, but there is a bit of that going on. The Jordanians are impatient, and uh, the real risk is that uh, that aid money uh, is drying up, that the NGOs remain unfunded, and that the internally displaced inside of the country remain very much in harm's way and hard to get to. So. As I said earlier, aid has been used, has been weaponized. It's a political tool. Um, and will the international community hold the Syrians to account and, 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 uh, and can, can demand anything uh, in terms of protecting people that do, do go back? I don't think so. It, it's, it's, there's a, there's a, a collective fatigue amongst an international system that didn't really work in the first place when it came to Syria. Uh, there's no leadership from the Americans. They're not, not interested in, in, uh, in a role in, in stabilizing the country. Their interest in Syria is a switch from ISIS to Iran. It's certainly nothing to do with nation building. So I, I don't think there are answers there. They remain vulnerable. Um, they remain very exposed, the refugees, and uh, they need to be monitored. Uh, their, their situation needs to be monitored and reported on for a long time to come. I mean, what's the figure? Something like 10 million people are still displaced, aren't they, internally and externally? Yeah, half the country have left half their the homes. Yeah, so absolutely. That hasn't changed significantly in recent uh, months. We've had a look at that, and there are very few. We're talking hundreds <laughs> that have crossed the border back from Lebanon, thousands from Turkey, and I'm not quite sure of the Jordanian numbers, but it's certainly not a groundswell. I can, I can hear you. Yeah? yeah. Okay. Um, I think maybe we need to look at the okay, recording. Sure, sure. Yeah. 
so my name is Noah. I'm a master's student here uh, studying conflict studies. Uh, so first of all, I wanted to thank you for the for your talk and for your insight. And uh, this is a bit of an extrapolation, so please bear with me. Um, seeing the news, you know, events in Aleppo, in you know, Hama, and, and so on and so forth. I couldn't help but recall, you know, to, to connect it to, to Hafez al-Assad's uh, regime, the Hama massacre of uh, 1982. And I was wondering if you think, of course, that the conflict in Syria nowadays is much larger in scale and in, in uh, refugees and the amount of actors involved in damage. However, uh, do you think a comparison to Hafez al-Assad's uh, Hama massacre is worthwhile? both for, for us, uh, you know, from our academic ivory tower uh, as we're trying to make sense of what happens and also for um, civil rights organizations and NGOs on the ground. Well, the Hama massacre um, certainly marked itself in, the, in the, the region's history for being conducted with total impunity. Uh, there, were, there were never anybody held to account for that. In fact, uh, Hafez's brothers remain one of whom was very involved, remains in London, um, safe and sound. Um, so the impunity, I think the extrapolation would be that that impunity there 36 years ago has been repeated down the track, and I think that's self-evident. I'm, I'm sure, despite the, uh, there, there are some good and noble people who are doing their best to, to hold um, regime figures to account. There are... Um, there are uh, travel bans on some indictments that have been prepared for others. But I'm not confident in the uh, global justice system actually bringing people to account. Um, I admire the work of good people and like that, and I think that more of that needs to be done. Um, but at the end of the day, it, there is very little political will to, to, to pile on into Syria anymore. And uh, I think we were, I was discussing that with, with, with Chris earlier on. It's been a... Um, such an exhausting um, political struggle. Uh, I think that everybody's fatigued. Uh, I think if we got to a point several years ago where there was still enough energy amongst uh, those who would bring such people to account, then maybe. But I, I actually think the analogy is a good one, um, that uh, the Hummer massacre set, set a scene for what took place on a much bigger scale 36 years later, and again, uh, we won't see people held to account for it. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Gabriel. I'm a PhD student at SOAS. My question is, do you think that uh, Iran and Russia have the capacity right now to lead the process of reconstruction? Because both the, the Iranian regime also has some problems. Russia has its problems as well. Or they will need the help of the West or Europe or whatever to to this process and how, how do you think this is going to, to be done? Thank you. It's, it's a very good issue. Uh, and I think the answer is that they don't at this point because of, of what they would need to spend in blood and, or certainly in treasure. They've spent enough blood uh, that they don't have. Um, they want to uh, engender a, a, a donor process. They want to bring in private, the private sector um, in, in order to rebuild and they want to involve themselves in that in that process too. I think where to the extent that there remains leverage from the, the West is that France, uh, other European countries 
to some extent Britain, although Britain was never played a big role in Syria. Uh, um, but what they are trying to do is, is condition political reforms on, 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 don on, on donations for reconstruction. The French in particular are leading very heavily with that. I don't see a great deal of movement on, on, re on rebuilding Syria. Um, there are some projects that, are, that may happen, a hospital here, a hospital there, but in terms of the, the, the b many tens of billions of dollars that will be needed to do so, the Russians don't have an answer to it yet, nor do the Iranians, and I don't think anyone does. Um, and that's, you know, we, we talk about this consistently, and I don't think, I haven't seen any, any momentum there. It's going to take a while for that to take shape. The lady up the back. Thank you again for your talk. Um, my name is Yasmina. I'm an undergraduate in um, politics and international relations. Um, my question is, um, considering a little bit further afar, um, Yemen, um, you mentioned the collective fatigue, um, and I wondered whether you could speak on um, how the conflict in Syria and this collective fatigue that you've mentioned um, has impacted coverage on Yemen and the events in Yemen and the world's kind of concentration on um, the conflict there. Um, well, certainly Syria for many years consumed the energy of people such as myself and, and colleagues and, uh, and diplomats and others because of the sheer scale of it and because of its uh, geopolitical significance. It was, a, it was a very potent conflict with enormous ramifications. Um, the, the, the heat of the Syrian story has, has faded and I think in the last six months in particular, the, the focus on Yemen has been much needed and, and very much deserved. And I, I do think that, um, <coughs> that a, a very necessary spotlight has been cast on that conflict, which had been overshadowed by something which was bigger, but in many ways no less important. So I think that with Syria, I wouldn't say contained, but certainly at, at a point where focus can be diverted, Yemen could be the beneficiary of this. And I think that certainly in the, in the context of the Khashoggi atrocity in Istanbul, um, there is now rip, um, political momentum to solve the, um, to the Yemen issue that we haven't seen in Syria. So I'm anticipating uh, some movement there because of uh, the global impetus driven by the revulsion about Khashoggi. And I hope that, um, that we could finally see some justice delivered to the people of Yemen in the next six months. Thank you. Um, Jessica Watkins, I'm a research officer at the Middle East Centre. Um, so my question's a bit uh, similar to Ian's, but um, knowing what you know now and assuming that victory, that history is written by the victors, do you think that were it all to happen again, you would cover events somewhat differently in Syria? Um, and if I'm allowed a second que question, also the, um, the pan-Arab media, um, you mentioned that the Guardian has taken pride in uh, supporting those who dare to defy. Well, Al Jazeera is very well known for also taking that stance. Um, and their position on Syria certainly started off on, on those terms as well, but um, they, they haven't fared too well in terms of the viewership. So I wonder what you think about accusations against Al Jazeera Arabic and other pan-Arab media stations that they have been, uh, in fact, inciting sectarian violence in Syria. Well, speaking for ourselves first, as I said earlier, um, 
we're not social activists in my line of work, not myself or Ian or, or any of us really. Um, we, we reported in good faith um, people who were protesting, revolting against a, a totalitarian regime and saying we want a stake in our dignity. And that was, that was our job is to do that. So we were doing our jobs and uh, I wouldn't do it any differently at all in, in future. Uh, I, one thing that I, I keep coming back to is the false narrative that was, that was uh, attempted to be established very early on, that this was never about genuine people with genuine demands. It was always about hidden hands. We were never going to let that stand. And that was a very important element of our coverage, to, 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 to cut through that and to speak truthfully and to give these, these people a dignity that they deserved by letting them speak for themselves. Al Jazeera, I prefer not to get into them. I mean, they can speak for themselves, I would have thought. Um, I, 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 did, I, I would say a couple of things, though, that, um, and this, was, this troubled me at the time. I might regret saying this in the public forum, but whatever. Um, 2013, the middle of the year, when things had got really dangerous in the north of the country, northern Syria, and there were military bases being overrun by ISIS at that point, which had just emerged out of Jabhat al-Nusra, but they were global jihadis. Al Jazeera were embedding with them, and they were, you know, they were embedded reporters. They would be standing, they would be doing interviews after these guys had overrun military bases with ISIS flags behind the people, and they'd be escorted around, and they'd be casting them as as legitimate participants in the civil war. I found that problematic, and I do think that speaks to your point that perhaps um, they may have uh, let their coverage um, uh, be corrupted at some points. Actually, can I just add to that, just a thought, as, as someone that's involved me in the past, that we, that we maintained, I think you would agree, we maintained as best we could a distinction between reporting and analysis and comment, and those are different things. Now, the borders between them are not always strictly observed, but I think that the principle of doing that was something that we tried very hard to uh, maintain. And it's always difficult to do that in The Guardian, where there are, you know, there are, there are many competing voices and worldviews, and, uh, and comment quite often gets conflated with, with news. But yes, as reporters, we, the formula is to give people a voice, and, and we, that's what we did then, and I wouldn't do that differently. Yeah, lady here. Um, I'm Georgia Bact. I did my master's in global politics here last year. Um, I wanted to follow up on the point about Iran and ask you if you think that Iran has a grand strategy for Syria at the moment. And you mentioned Qasem Soleimani's visit to Moscow. Uh, in fact, he's been seen in Syria as well, very often coordinating Hezbollah. And I wanted to ask you specifically about what you think the role of Hezbollah would be in Iran's plan. Well, there's no doubt Iran has a grand strategy for Syria. And, uh, and they've been executing that with their typical strategic patience and um, you know they're, they're very effective they're, they're, um, they, they play a long game and uh, they have uh, since the fall of Saddam Hussein they've done very well in Baghdad they've uh, they've asserted themselves they haven't won Iraq I mean but there's a very strong contest between Qom and Najaf there and with I would in my assessment uh, Wiliat Fakir and uh, winning. So th those who are allied to the um, Iranian regime doing very well in Baghdad. Now they've, they've looked to export that success into Syria, which matters to them even more in many ways because Damascus has long been a bridgehead to Hezbollah, which is the most important uh, aspect of, the, of their foreign operations. So their goals have been strategic and those are to consolidate Hezbollah, to, to, uh, to make sure that the regime doesn't fall and to 
and to, and to use Syria as, a, as not just a, a foothold, but as a bridgehead to, to further their influence from uh, the east to the west vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Israelis. Um, it gives them a different platform, it gives them strategic depth, and it's given the Israelis legitimate reason for concern um, uh, because, you know, the, the missiles can get a lot closer. Um, there's, there's a, the, 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 the cross-border dynamic between Iraq and Syria is something that is very difficult, difficult to control. And there is a risk, which I think the Syrian regime itself will do, do a lot to, to try and uh, fight off or keep at bay, but there is a, a risk that the Iran will try and instill a uh, Shia supremacist zeal uh, in some aspects of the regime. I mean, that, that, as I said, Assad and, and his supporters don't welcome that, but the, the, the zone from central Damascus to the airport is starting very much to resemble Dahia in Beirut. Uh, the area from Damascus through to the Lebanese border is has there's been a, a slight attritional change in partially in demogra demography but also in ensuring that communities that secure that route which is very important for them it's strategically important uh, are, are made up by populations that remain loyal to them so the Iranian goals in in Syria are very very important perhaps even more so than they are in Iraq right at the back guy in the blue shirt please Hi, my name is Michael. I'm a master's student here. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the Kun attacks in, I believe, April of 2017, because um, that happened at a point where there was not only, there was pretty incontrovertible evidence of exactly what was used in the attack. I don't remember exactly what the nerve agent was, but it was horrific. The video was very clear and extremely disturbing. And that in itself was evidence of two things. A, that the Russians who were on the airbase from which that attack was launched had either prior knowledge of it or had given the okay to some extent. And B, that obviously those uh, nerve agent reserves were never removed in the first place. So a couple days later, there was the one unilateral response from the US, I believe. They, they launched some, some missiles at that base. But was there ever a notion that that could be an inflection point for global response of any kind, considering that it's so inherently tied the Russians into it? I think the, the calculation at that point was that they could get away with it because I don't think they would have done it if they feared a significant uh, military response from America or elsewhere. Um, and they did get away with it. Um, you know, I think there were 45 cruise missiles or tomahawks fired at empty runways and hangars. That was a symbolic strike. It was, it was Trump who'd been wound up by his daughter Ivanka saying, look at these dead children, just saying, well, I've got, you know, I've, I've got a missile armory. I can do what I want here. But there was no strategy that followed that. Um, and the, the context of that attack was interesting. The opposition, and it, this was, Islamists and jihadists, this was not regular opposition, but they, in the week earlier, they had mounted an offensive on Hama, and they'd done very well. They'd pushed very hard until, until Hezbollah came to their rescue, and they'd, 
they'd overrun a, a, ba a regime base in Hummer and, and killed about 50 to 70 people. Khan Sheikhun was the, was the town to the north, that, and that's where some of them had come from. Not all, but some had, but it was the easiest point to strike back at the opposition. So there was a, 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 there was a retaliation, and that was the reason that the regime launched that strike. And, uh, and it was also to send a message, and the message was that anything you can do, we can hit you back bigger with, with all we have, and we're more powerful than you are. And um, the, the international revulsion at that incident probably did surprise them, and it was and partly because it was chronicled as, as, as definitively as it was, and one of the reasons it was is because I sent the, our junior there. I arranged access for him, and he was the only one to get there, and uh, we, it produced some reporting that we, were, that we were proud of. But at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, I think um, I don't see how the Russians couldn't have known that that was happening. The Syrians launched it, but I think the, uh, the, the Russian consent was at the very least implicit. Okay, lady here in red. Hi, uh, I'm Julie Boyer. I work for Mercy Corps, the INGO, uh, one of the INGO providing support in Syria. Um, so now, th I mean, now that the war is almost over, one of the greatest challenges is how people, how, how will the population come together again? So I will be, uh, yeah, I, will, I would like to have your view on how the situation will evolve, especially in Northeast Syria between the Kurds and the Arabs, but also how uh, the cohesion will come back also um, in the country, in the rest of the country. And my second question is uh, what, I mean, what are the view, what are you, what are your views on um, the, how the aid has been um, utilised during the crisis in Syria? Aid, help, okay. Reconciliation is, a, is an overused word in the region these days. Um, it's been talked about in Iraq a lot. I've, I've spent a lot of time in Iraq. Um, um, and it's been spoken about in Lebanon for, for many decades too. Time is a healer and we're not there yet in Syria. Um, it's it's a it's a difficult conflict on a number of levels, but one of the one of the main levels is that the those who largely feel that they were have been disenfranchised by Syria, not just Syria, it must be said, but also by the death of Rafiq Hariri in Lebanon, the uh, ousting of Saddam Hussein in in Iraq, and now the the civil war in Syria, where the majority of the opposition who stood against Assad was Sunni, and uh, there is a collective Sunni grievance there. Uh, that they have been diminished, that they have lost dignity, that they have lost status right across the region. This is dangerous because it feeds into a sectarian dynamic that the, that the Shias or the Iranians have been ascendant at, the, at their expense. And this is something that um, is spoken about a lot in all three countries. And it needs to be averted. It needs to be stopped. Um, and um, we're not at the point in Syria where that's that's likely to happen. It's going to take a few years before this uh, collective vehemence is, or the, this this, this uh, resentment uh, is is going to be in any way manageable. I would have thought. Um, it's not out of control, um, but it's it's it, it remains a potent risk. Um, if you if you just switch briefly to the Kurds and the Arabs in the northeast, the American-backed SDF was a an experiment that worked tactically, and it did help. It did help oust um, ISIS from 
certainly from Raqqa and, and from elsewhere. Um, but what happens next is, is very much a work in progress too. There's not any, any you know, there's, there's no risk of this bubbling over into, into direct enmity right now. But I, I do wonder how Rojava is going to be settled in any way, settled down in any way where uh, Raqqa has now been occupied more or less by the SDF, which are Kurdish-led. I mean, the PKK from Turkey, the, uh, the, the PYD from Syria, and the, and the Arab boys who did the fighting. I mean, it's, there are just some really tricky issues there that are going to take a long time to, to settle on down. And I, I wish I had some answers. I can, I can diagnose the problem without, a, without much uh, difficulty, but prescribing a solution is, is a bit beyond me for now. So, guy right at the back in the grey sweater, please. Hi. Uh, my question was more to do with the end game of Turkey in this uh, conflict. Obviously, you know, we've seen them taking over, you know, the region of, of Afrin, and uh, they've obviously been involved in several other aspects. So I was, you know, for example, uh, with ISIS, there was reports of them, uh, some sort of oil trades were going on there. And I was wondering, what is the actual end game and what is their current strategic goal in this? Is it to uh, destabilize the region? Is it to do with the Kurds? Or what is the actual purpose of all of this? And how do you see... Syria and Russia reacting to them taking territories. What do you expect them to do uh, in the long term? So Turkey's overriding goal right now is it's all about Kurds for them. There's an eight. There's a 500 mile border between Darkush in the west and uh, and and the, the Iraqi border. And there, there used to be only a short gap in the middle, and that was from Afrin through to Manbij on the Euphrates River. That was 60 miles, and that was the only area that was Arab. The rest is Kurdish, from Manbij to the Iraqi border and from, and from uh, uh, Afrin to Dakush. The Turkish operation to oust uh, the, the Kurds from Afrin has been very strategic for them in terms of it, it's opened up uh, another 80, 90 miles there. So from Dakush, so basically west of the, of the um, Euphrates River is, is now something, and 20 miles down is now a Kurdish zone of influence in which uh, demography has been changed in Afrin and, and, uh, and villages around. There are, there will, by attrition, there will be more Kurds, more Tur uh, Arabs than Kurds there, and they will be Arabs that are loyal to the Turks for giving, giving this, this land back. At the same time, the, uh, the Turks are using uh, part of that zone, uh, they call it Euphrates Shield, it's just a zone of influence to manage their interests in the Syrian conflict and if, they, if they choose to project against the regime. And with their ongoing enmity towards the Americans, they remain tempted to, uh, to at the very least, cause trouble in Rojava. I don't personally see how they could um, attack the, the PYD or, or PKK or whoever it is in, in the Northeast because the Americans retain a significant presence there. And as I said, they're looking to reorientate the, uh, the Kurdish forces that they raised to fight ISIS to, uh, to position towards Iran, to stop Iran stepping into a vacuum in Rojava. Would, well, what would the Turks want? Would they prefer the Iranians or the Americans? I, I think it's, it'd be a tough call for them. I think they'd prefer the, their own proxies if they could or, or, or to do it themselves. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the Turkish play is to encourage the Kurds in the northeast to re-ally with the Syrian regime itself, who they no longer have a, an overriding influence, uh, sorry, an overriding... Um, desire to topple. So I think the play is for the, 
the PYD, YPG to, to orientate towards Damascus. The Turks would be happy with that because it would mean that, that any aspirational goals of sovereignty or, or, uh, or even autonomy would be uh, no longer valid. And I think that they see, they see just south of their border is, is solely through a Turkish prism these days. They believe that ISIS is not the threat that it was. They think they can maintain Assad and partner with him because he's uh, the lesser of two evils for now. Chris. Thank you very much, uh, Martin. Um, you, you said earlier on that the, the, the regime effectively has won, and indeed, you know, the, the, the war between the Syrian Arab components of this conflict is clearly over. You've mentioned uh, Idlib, you've mentioned uh, Turkey and the Kurds and, and ISIS, those are other areas of ongoing conflict, perhaps. But the one area perhaps we haven't heard from you is about the Israeli-Iranian struggle, which has actually flared up over the last... Uh, year to 18 months we've seen many more Israeli strikes and of course we had that issue with the, the downing of the of the Russian plane which at least at the moment has put it put it on hold but do you see that flaring back up uh, you know will the Iranians test Israeli will on this they certainly have been testing Israeli will and they've been pushing it as hard as they could they've had three very significant weapons drops um, and they are they've, one of them has been a anti-aircraft uh, missile system, um, others have been strategic uh, rockets, and two of them have been Homs, one of them has been Damascus Airport, and they've, on all three occasions, the uh, supplies have been destroyed by the Israelis before it got into the warehouse. So th the, the message is clear to the Iranians that, they, that the Israelis have, have pretty good eyes and ears. Um, they had been using, attempting to use the the uh, Syrian Golan as a strategic plateau, um, and that that in itself would, would would add an extra dimension to the uh, the standoff between Hezbollah and southern Lebanon and the Israelis across the border. But again, um, the uh, the Israeli penetration across the Golan Plateau, which is pretty much flat, it's not it's not as difficult as as the mountains of Lebanon, the valleys to 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 defend. Um, They've done pretty well. I think the Israelis tactically have played a, a, a solid game. Uh, they think, their view is that they can keep the Iranians at bay for now, but they're, they keep talking about um, a, a tipping point. If, if the capacity to fit, uh, retrofit dumb rockets with precise guidance systems um, is shifted from Syria into Lebanon, then that becomes a, a serious problem for them and it becomes a, a strategic problem for them. So I, I think after all of this, uh, this uh, blood and treasure that the Iranians have spent in Syria to, to get a, an even stronger bridgehead, I don't think they're going to, to go away. They have got different land routes to get things to Damascus and beyond now that they didn't have before, and they'll, they'll continue to use those, and they're more difficult to detect than planes flying into Palmyra or, the airport or Damascus airport. It's an ongoing area, and I think it, it, it keeps the that aspect of the of the civil war or the post-civil war is probably the most dangerous and I think that uh, you know that needs to be watched for a long time uh, yeah this lady with a red top yeah. oh sorry next door whoever 
Uh, hi, I'm Ratib. I'm also a student here at LSE. I wanted to ask you about the recent chemical attack, uh, weapon, weapon, chemical weapon attack on Aleppo, uh, the ones that the Russian government is talking about. So that was three or four days ago, and it was chlorine. It, the allegation was that it came via artillery. Um, it did come at a time where the Syrians had been firing artillery. Um, the opposition does have some. But it, uh, it, it, um, we've, had a, we've had a little bit of a look at this. We haven't had a deep look. Um, there was a, an attack also in Aleppo in, in, involved Siren, actually. It was back in early 2013 in which um, opposition positions had been hit with artillery and the wind changed and uh, it blew the Siren vapours back on towards the regime and they've claimed that that was an opposition attack and it wasn't. I can't speak with authority on, on the attack in Aleppo last weekend, but I do know that I can say, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Ian, uh, but I, and others in the room may, may know as well, but I don't know of, a, of an opposition attack using chlorine and artillery shells uh, at any point during the war. ISIS did in, in a few times, but uh, the opposition itself, who are the only ones in, uh, on, on in that part of the country, I don't know of them using chlorine and artillery before. It's a hugely divisive issue, isn't it? I mean, they played out all its horror on social media. Mm. Um, please, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Maria. I also do masters in here at LSE, and. Um, I had one question, but now I have two. Um, going back to the um, fighter jet down in 2015. Um, so back in 2015, I also had a chance of um, speaking to a person who is close to Vladimir Putin and um, who was at the moment when Putin was told that fighter is down, that our president, our Mr. President, first was in rage, but then he was in a fury. And when later on there was news that Putin and Erdogan met and they um, talked and they discussed and they decided that they will work together in Syria. Um, well, I guess just my question is for how long do you think this coalition will be in place? How stable it is? And um, do you think do you think they will work together until the end? And my second question is also concerning Russia. Um, so, coming from Russia, <laughs> if it's not obvious. Um, yeah, so in Russian media, this the whole Syrian conflict is right now portrayed as big victories, like a huge thing that finally we are taking our rightful place in the world. And um, it kind of gave a lot of self um, of confidence to Russian military, to well, Mr. President himself. Uh, there is even like a mythology kind of um, being created in, in, in Russian like um, like society, just the war heroes in Syria and uh, how well we performed. And um, again, here my question is: so obviously for the Russia, the lessons from Syria is that we can do interventions uh, and we can participate in this kind of. I don't want to say proxy conflict, but for the lack of 
my English skills, I will say proxy conflicts. The conflicts that before were kind of more of a U.S. privilege to participate in. But what do you think would be the lessons for the coalition uh, from from the Syrian war? Thank you very much. So I think Turkey's alliance with the uh, Russians. I think it, 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 I think the the downing of the Russian jet was long ago. That's been dealt with. That's been forgotten. I think that. Turkey's um, partnership with Russia in, in Idlib in particular, I think it's not a bad deal. It's a, it's a very good deal. I think it's a good deal for them and I think it's a good deal for, more importantly, for the people of the Northwest. Two and a half million people would know where to run. Um, it, it was a case where interests aligned. I think that the, uh, the Turks believe that, um, that they are closer to the Russian and uh, Iranian position on the North than they are on the American and Saudi view, which is it's all about ISIS, the Turks' preoccupation with the Kurds are probably better served by the Russians and by the, the Iranians too. So I think that's, uh, that's a, uh, an alliance which isn't going away at any point soon. In terms of um, what Russia can take out of this, they've played a very big role in, the, in st stabilizing things for Assad. Um, and I think they, they have a significant stake in what emerges from the ruins of the country. Uh, what about their credentials as a, as a global power because of it? Again, they can lay claim to that. Uh, the Americans did not want to play, uh, certainly not in any meaningful level. Uh, Russia was able to, uh, to take a strategic stake in the region for the first time in many years. It's a long way beyond having a listening post in Tartus now. It has, it has, a, it has muscle, it has, it has influence, and it is in a position to, to at least partially dictate terms. So in a perception sense, at the very least, uh, Russia can say, well, w we're back and, uh, and we've, uh, we're ascendant and the Americans aren't. Yeah, guy in blue uh, in the middle, thank you. Hi, uh, Christoph from UCL, I'm studying IR. Um, so my question is a little, little bit more general. We talked a bit about the fatigue that's present not just among international institutions, but generally among the Western public, and that obviously then influences the agenda of the policymakers as well. And it's not just about Syria. We can also take the example of Ukraine, which the war in Ukraine completely disappeared, uh, or like almost disappeared from Western media coverage. As a journalist, do you, do you see this short-lived uh, attention of Western public as a problem? And if so, do you think it's just inherent to human nature or can we, just, can we do something about it? Thank you. It wasn't necessarily short-lived. I mean, uh, seven years of war, a really grinding intensive war in which uh, you know, careers have been devoted to, to covering. There is, an, there is a human aspect to that, obviously there is. People don't want to deal with uh, relentless grinding misery all day, every day. So, you know, you, there's, a, there's a genuine need to switch focus just to, to, to restore the soul in some ways. Um, um, so I, I, I don't think this one's particularly uh, an attention span issue. Um, you know, we, but w as a, the Guardian as an organization, I'll speak for us, we, we do remain committed to, to telling important stories and 
we've, we've dis we're discussing this today, actually. I was in the office. I'm not there very often, but there are, we do need to find new ways to, to reinvigorate coverage here. It's not easy, really, because it's, it's just not going anywhere. But the story remains as, as uh, significant as it was in many ways, and it, it still does deserve coverage, and I think it's incumbent upon myself and, and my colleagues to find different ways to tell it and to, 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 to re-engage. The thing in the digital media age is that we know how many people read. We know how long they read, spend on each piece. We know where they, where they came from before they ended up at this story. We know where they went. We know which countries they, they were reading in. So those metrics are important in, in, um, in, in establishing uh, interest in a story. And it, it, is, it, it is truthful that uh, over a couple of years now, you can see the metrics go right down when it comes to Syria. It doesn't mean that you don't, um, you don't cover it because less people are reading. It just means that you need to do things better. And, uh, and we're going to try and do that in the next few months. Yes, at the back, please. Uh, my name is Howard. Yeah, my question was um, if you could elaborate on the extent to which Russia and Iran's interests may or may not be aligned inside Syria, and then also in terms of central or local level factions on the government side, more or less. Um, and all the implications of this for Assad and the regime going forward, because it's, it's been interesting following the sort of political track, say, at times different people having different views on ex precisely who's playing who in terms of um, Assad's, uh, Assad and Russia, for example, and what Russia has said it wants to see in terms of the political track. Okay, so Russia and Iran's interests have aligned to the point where they've both uh, cooperated very well to, to stabilize the country and to ensure that Bashar doesn't fall. The Russians supply the Air Force, the Iranian, and, and some of the military officers too, but the Iranians have provided the shock troops. Um, they've, uh, they've done very, they've, they've organized thousands of um, Afghanis, some Pakistanis, some Iraqis, some Hezbollah, Syrians as well. So they, they, they've done a, they've played a very proactive role on the ground. So you've gotten to a point now where the interests that have aligned may start to diverge because both have very different views on what, on, on how to define the national character. And that brings us to your second point, which is also an important one. What would Assad, what would the regime want uh, in terms of who would they lean to right now if they could? Probably the Russians, I'd say. Um, you know, they, they, they do view the Iranians with suspicion but they also view them with, with fear and, and respect too, and they know, you know, they can't keep them too offside. But, um, you know, the, the Syrian military has been, is, is, is Russian influence more so than Iranian. The defense ministry is too. Uh, parts of the uh, other institutions in Damascus are pretty Iranian in, in nature now. But I think the regime itself, if forced to choose, would, uh, would certainly ally itself to Russia and, and favourites in, in, in terms of um, whatever influence it wants to bring to, to how governance is, is conducted in Syria from this, from this point onwards. Right at the very back, please. Hi, you talked about um, Hezbollah's role in the Syrian conflict, especially in Qusayr. I just wanted to know if you could comment on Hamas's position. Um, 
if Assad has effectively won the war, where does that leave Hamas? Uh, is it seeking to repair its relations with Syria? Or given how vindictive the Syrian regime is, will the um, regime seek to punish um, Hamas for its perceived betrayal? That's a good issue. Uh, and you're right about Hamas. Khaled Meshal left very early on, and he's been in exile in, with Abu Mazouk in, uh, in Qatar ever since, and has barely raised his voice. So Hamas tapped out, and they, and they didn't say a lot, um, but they made their displeasure quite clear at the Syrian regime. And, uh, and I don't think that's going to be mended at any point soon. However, Hamas have been reaching out to the Iranians, and uh, there, there is a reconnection there. The Iranians are more forgiving than the regime is. And uh, it, it, it's more difficult than it ever was to get things into Gaza from the Sinai, but the bits and pieces do get there from time to time. And there, there has been um, um, contact between Hamas and Hezbollah and Hamas and Iran in Beirut, uh, but not the regime, and I don't think that's going to change. Actually, I, may I ask a question? Can I use the privilege of the chair? Because um, that's a really interesting question. That, uh, in, in, uh, the Hamas, perhaps maybe just worth explaining a little bit, Hamas was based in Damascus until 2011, and as the dimensions of the uprising became clear, uh, they became uh, unhappy with it and abandoned it, which was quite a significant moment. Uh, the Iranians, uh, this is something else, something I've just been working on, the Iranians actually now give a lot of support to Islamic Jihad in Gaza, which is part of the way in which the story has ramifications. But there's a broader question I really want to ask you which is this. I noticed, you know, just a few weeks ago we had the UN General Assembly, big diplomatic event of the year, and there was a quite a striking photograph. The Syrian Foreign Minister, Walid Mualim, meeting the Bahraini Foreign Minister. And I guess you saw it. It was quite striking, wasn't it? It was as if they were, you know, they were besties. They were, they were, they really were, they embraced. And now, you know, Bahrain is part of the, you know, the Sunni, Saudi-dominated coalition in the Gulf, very hostile to Bashar. My question is this, prediction. How long will it take for Assad to be received, just like in the old days, in Arab capitals again? Well, there's a lot of talk about that at the moment, and uh, in Beirut and elsewhere. There's an Arab League summit in Beirut in late January, and the UAE Intel uh, are very heavily lobbying on behalf of Syria being reinvited back into the Arab League. This coming January. In two months' time. <laughs> And that would, that would mean Bashar visiting Beirut um, to stand on the stage with all his Arab brethren shaking hands and smiling, which would be an extremely symbolic moment, certainly in Lebanon. Um, Do you think it could happen? The, the diplomatic view is yes, uh, but I'd, I'd put it straight up 50-50 at the moment. Uh, but there's certainly a lot of momentum there. Any more? We've got time for three or four more questions, if you're reasonably concise. Yeah, hand at the back. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the talk as well. Uh, my name is Constantine. I'm currently a postgrad student here at the LSE. And I was a, a freelance journalist last year in Iraq and Syria. Um, after it became clear that uh, Mosul was going to fall uh, to coalition forces, uh, Baghdadi partly shifted the priority from uh, ensuring the physical integrity of the caliphate through ensuring its ideological continuity. Uh, and that entailed, for example, uh, redoubling efforts to spread the ideology within the younger generation of children in the areas they controlled. 
what do you think is the longer term uh, significance of that? Of the children or of, of the change in... Uh um, mostly the children, uh, considering there's so few uh, organizations uh, in the field to deal with rehabilitation and reintegration. Mm -hmm. And the general change as well in the strategy. Yeah, okay. Um, the ISIS cubs, uh, the young, the, the indoctrinated uh, children, I mean, they're, they're, they're an issue, a very significant issue, and we've spent quite some time with uh, indoctrinated kids who are being treated as uh, adults in the Iraqi court system and uh, punished mercilessly by, you know, they, they, were, they, were, they were children, but their lives have been ruined. And their mothers are also, uh, who are many of them who are victims in this, uh, are also being dealt with without any mercy whatsoever, many being sentenced to death after summary trials. So the Iraqis are doing all they can just to more or less eliminate this issue, no matter the means. I don't necessarily see... I mean, I, I, it's hard to estimate how many children there'd be, but I'd say, you know, maybe a couple of thousand, but uh, can they, in, in future generations, pose a, a, a really significant threat? Maybe, but I, I think that uh, um, just dealing with the remnants of ISIS and its attempts to, as you say, reposition, uh, it's no longer worried about land. It doesn't seem to matter anymore, despite it being so important and all about Dabek in 2013 and 14. Um, Baghdadi remaining on the loose is, and, uh, and defying Western intel and Western militaries, also Russians and Iranians, is something which they can take strength from. Um, he's withdrawn to the, the heartland of Anbar, particularly around the Al-Fatha Basin, Rawi, things like that. Um, and ISIS are fighting a rearguard along the Euphrates River Valley where it all began for them way back in 2004 or three in their earlier incarnations in Islamic State and Al-Qaeda in Iraq, those sorts of things. If they can continue to defy, if they can continue to mount this rearguard, then ISIS 2.0 is a bigger problem, I would, I would think, than Cubs. Um, containment issue, containment um, efforts have been reasonably effective, but uh, while they've been defeated in many areas militarily, they haven't been strategically. And I do worry, I do worry that the Iraqi state, which will probably have the, the main uh, responsibility for containing, if not destroying what remains of them, aren't necessarily up to it. Um, but the next year or so is going to tell us, it'll be instructive. Yes. Sir, you, you have a laptop, blue laptop? Um, just on the point about the Arab League and the possibility of Assad um, rejoining, um, I wondered if you could give us a prediction. Um, what do you think, your th what do you think um, Assad's next steps will be um, in the coming months and years in terms of rejoining the international community, rejoining kind of um, the international stage uh, or laying low? What will be his priorities? Well, the Arab League, if it happens, will be huge. It's very, very important for him. I mean, that gives him a legitimacy. It confers authority um, amongst the, uh, I mean, it's been pushed hard by Sisi, by the UAE. The Saudis don't seem to take a position at this point, but they may. If they did, that would be, in the context of Khashoggi, with them looking for to be rehabilitated, they might as well. So um, uh, uh, I don't think he's going to have a similar success in Europe or beyond. Um, the French don't see him, the British don't either. Germans, Italians, Central Europeans do, but it's a long way to go before he's uh, going to be visiting his father-in-law in Mayfair. Um, it's, it's, I think Trump will remain wary of him for a while, to the extent that Trump has any morals. 
Um, but I, but the big one for him would definitely be the Arab League. If he can, if he can take a, take the stage in a region, regional sense, so that's huge for him. Then the Brexit element here. Sorry. I don't. <laughs> okay, a couple more. Lady here. Do wave your hand again. Um, you said that uh, diplomacy has largely failed um, with the um, the crisis in Syria, and um, I wanted to know uh, what your opinions are regarding the lessons that the diplomatic community can learn. And um, there has also been criticism about the outgoing um, UN envoy in Syria. So linking to that, um, what advice would you give to the incoming um, UN uh, envoy uh, that's covering Syria. Yeah, it has. Well, I don't think there's much doubt that diplomacy has failed. Um, I would say, belatedly in the conflict, uh, this deal that I keep coming back, where mutual interests aligned Russia, Iran, and Turkey to save Idlib, that mattered, uh, and that you know the Turks. The interesting thing about that is the Turks were genuinely prepared to apply real military muscle there to, to, to assert their interests. Iran didn't want to apply their military muscle to save Idlib because, or to, and to, to, to cleanse the province on behalf of Bashar. And, and the Russians made the calculation that even they couldn't lie and spin their way out of uh, the, the human catastrophe that would follow of their air force. Um, uh, led the campaign. Two and a half million people confined into a space like that with nowhere to run. It would just would have been a horrible bloodbath, the, the worst of the war. So I think the lesson from it is that diplomacy in the context of Syria, a, a, a brutal place where power or concessions are, are rarely made, would only is that, has only worked when genuine military muscle has been on the table as well or, or some form of force which accompanies... Uh, um, you know, a diplomatic push. I think that the uh, Syrians had Demisturas measure for minute one, day one, a well-intentioned fellow who uh, it could it doesn't have an achievement to speak of, um, and he will leave. Uh, unfortunately for him, presiding over uh, a catastrophe such as that. Uh, there are many good people who have been working within that system, but I I, I think that. And I, I, I must say in his defence that um, he, the Geneva process, which was so central to him, was, was successfully sidelined by the Russians who set up uh, parallel processes in Astana and elsewhere. And, um, you know, I, I, I just think that, um, that in, a, in a country such as that or in a neighbourhood such as, as the Middle East, unless there is a genuine on-the-table threat of something uh, of, of of something which is going to run parallel to diplomacy. Uh, it's just going to end up being a, a cottage industry, industry discussion for diplomats. One more, please. Uh, yeah, good evening. My name is Sarah. I'm a PhD student in Middle Eastern Studies, but not working on contemporary uh, stuff. So um, actually, I wanted to ask, I lived in Lebanon between 2009 and 2014 and in 2013 I observed in April that people spoke about the fact that um, young Lebanese Shia men went to Syria, went into Al-Qusayr and 
fought there um, beside the, the Syrian army. Um, it took um, Nasrallah more than one month, I think almost two months, uh, to admit this fact. He was denying for quite a long time Everybody on the street was speaking about it. I mean, death bodies came back to Lebanon. And in the same time, I figured out that nobody is talking in it in the media, also not in the Arab media. So I was quite surprised how does it function. So what I wanted to know is that how the, I mean, how does it work? The What is spoken out on the streets, what people know through, I mean, what you know as a journalist by the fact that people are talking to you and how much time it takes or, I mean, how does it function before it comes to the media or not? Because for me, this lack of coverage was, I, I was surprised that people, I mean, the taxi driver was talking about all this stuff and I couldn't read about it. So, yeah. I think the, the, by the time the Qusair operation came around, and certainly in the middle of the battle, it, it, it wasn't a secret. There was, um, there was coverage. We were covering it. Uh, there was a lot on TV. I mean, it, it couldn't be denied because you could see it, certainly from the Mount Lebanon downwards or from Baalbek. You could see what was happening. And it was Hezbollah-led. It was the Syrian Air Force doing the bombing, but it was solely Hezbollah on the ground. Um, but I, I think more broadly, um, I think some... Arab media do feel a lot of pressure to, to, to hold their punches or not to cover certain things, and there are vested interests that um, make things difficult for them. Luckily, I don't feel that, and nor do my, some of my other colleagues in Beirut. You know, uh, I must say that there are some aspects of uh, covering Hezbollah which are tricky, because you know, at the end of the day, you live there and they can kick you out. But covering the Qusair war wasn't one of them. It was uh, in the in the year leading up to that is when Hezbollah were actively denying being involved in Syria. But by the time they got around to fighting it, uh, it was an open secret. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. Thank you very much for your questions, and thank you above all to Martin. Thank you so much. <laughs>